Friday afternoon deploy is actually a picture of Keyboard Cat opened up in Audacity. like um, people have stopped caring about vendor lock in the way that they did before. I don't hear people talking about it as much as I'm used to hearing about it. Mm. Um, even like when we talk to our clients and we're pitching AWS, people are like, cool, sounds good. Like we're, we're used to the idea now of, of, you know, the cloud is someone else's computer and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. But like, there's a lot of vendor lock going on and people just don't care, especially with like all of, you didn't have vendor lock when it was just like the core services for AWS and, and any other cloud provider. If it was just like virtual machines, databases, and object storage, that was more or less portable, right? Mm-hmm. But now that AWS is like not really innovating a whole lot in that area except for upgrading mm-hmm. their hardware, and now it's all these serverless solutions. <laughs> and that stuff is you're writing like your entire application infrastructure is 100% written to only run on that one service. Mm. Like good luck porting. You maybe you can port a lambda based architecture over to a Google Cloud platform relatively easily, mm. but like not all the glue, not everything that's going through SQS to trigger those jobs, right? Not everything yeah. that's going through if you're building an API serverless with an API gateway, like you're stuck unless you want to go rebuild. Which is interesting. That may be a big part of, of them pushing it so hard. I think almost yeah. certainly, right, is is the, the vendor lock aspect. Because mm-hmm. like it's bundled with, you're using usually a little bit of everything, a little bit of EC2, a little S3, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, fundamentally, yeah, like unless you want to rewrite the entirety of your plumbing, you're, the business logic, whatever you're writing in your code that you're deploying to a Lambda function, obviously, that's yours and can be portable. But, uh, you know everything outside of the business logic mm-hmm. of, of the actual the glue that makes your program program yeah. is is like all off, off flow and all that yeah right? like yeah. and and so this isn't just Amazon right the, Google's not immune to this like Firebase for auth is a good example mm. like and you can use Firebase auth and get off Google but you're not totally off Google you're you're at least still there for Firebase you know yeah so that's kind of scary um yeah so. I did start recording, by the way. We uh, are we I are wondered. in the episode oh. now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I uh, we we uh, we've gotten some love on the current episode that went out on our um, hmm. Python API frameworks. Uh, so I guess that was interesting to people. Um, everyone's looking at you know micro microservices and, and micro frameworks. So um, and I, I posted it in the NWA developers. That's, that's where I'm looking right now. Yeah. And, uh, I think they're looking at it more because of like some of the changes going on in the the Python. Well, I guess Python and also the Django community. Maybe um, I think that I think that Python in particular. Well, you know, when we looked at the benchmarks last week, Alan uh, and, and Tyrell and I. Um, you know, there was a whole lot of like micro microservice, micro framework stuff going on in other languages. Mm-hmm. It, was, it certainly wasn't exclusive to Python. So maybe there, I think there's just an explosion of it 
in, in lots of different languages and ecosystems. Yeah, even Rust, right? Which was, that was surprising. Yeah, a I mean, ton of, there was a ton of Rust, like Rust frameworks coming yeah. up. Um, but and I, I don't know if there's any like full on frameworks in Rust though exactly either. Again, pushing benchmarks, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I, who's to blame is Kubernetes, I think, right? Mm. Finally, um, Kubernetes has gotten like easier and easier to set up and deploy and manage. And so now we all have the ability to actually, because it's easy enough to, I think, design a microservice architecture, mm. but actually deploying it and maintaining and mm. running that, that used to be really hard. Yeah. And what was the point if you were just going to stand up virtual machines, each one running your microservice? Well, that wasn't very efficient at all, right? Right. Um, if they're truly microservices, do you really need an entire, you know, do you need to scale it in increments of one CPU? Do you need to scale it in increments of four gigs of RAM? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Kubernetes becoming a little bit more uh, approachable has made it where now everyone can deploy microservices in a way that, you know, wasn't doable when the first when the design pattern first started coming up. Yeah, and and with Kubernetes you can do it, you know, without a full on dedicated person just making sure it's still standing up basically. You know, the cluster is pretty pretty bulletproof once you stand it up. Yeah. Like that's the new black art, like how how do I actually stand up this cluster and and do all that, and, and fortunately, AWS and Google have an answer for you. Is, this is true. You don't worry about that at all. You yeah. vendor lock yourself into oblivion, and you use our managed Kubernetes service. Of course, Google has had that for a long time, and now um, AWS has. Was it um, AKS or yeah, EKS? EKS Elastic Kubernetes. Yep. Yeah. So, we, which we haven't tried yet. No, because um, I, you know, I mean, it's a little pricier. Uh, than just standing it up yourself, but you know there there's also going to be you're going to make up some time, I imagine, though, sure. for using their service, right? Definitely, like the infrastructure cost is higher, mm-hmm. um, but it takes a lot of infrastructure cost to offset developer time. Mm-hmm. If you're honest with yourself about what that actually costs, yeah, um, yeah. you know, paying because because what is it? It's like it's somewhere between one and two hundred bucks a month for EKS, and then you just pay for you just pay for the raw actual computing resources after that just yeah. like any other EC2 machine for the the workers mm-hmm. but the master node instead of you know standing up your own EC2 box and running kubernetes master that's what you use their their service for and uh, yeah and so you pay a couple hundred bucks for that um, but how how much develop even if you know even if you look at that if you don't factor in the cost of what it would cost to run your own master node on your own hardware, a couple hundred bucks a month. Like, what, how much, how far can a developer get for a couple hundred bucks a month on like setting up and managing and maintaining and operating your master node? The answer is not very far. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially if it's on your own hardware. Like, oh man. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, That's, I guess I said on your own hardware. I meant like on, on your own managed EC2, EC2 hardware. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to stand up your own, your own C4 extra large, ver- which is going to be cheaper than using EKS. Hmm. But it only like a hundred bucks a month cheaper, if that. Yeah, uh, I forget what the price is. Yeah, you're those, still but. using a C4 or C5 or. Yeah, it's still it's still a hundred dollar a month server, right? And and compared to the yeah the I, I think you have diminishing returns. You have less than one developer's hour of time basically per month in cost there. So, I it's 
So it's interesting, and but but also again, vendor lock, right? You, yeah. If you don't know, that's probably pretty easy to overcome. Learn to set up your own Kubernetes master, but mm. uh, and I haven't done it much with Google Cloud Platform. I, yeah, obviously I Google invented the sport, so yeah, that's probably pretty good. I imagine, and uh, you know, I know it's doing a lot of that under the hood with all of their services. You know, yeah, we're we're used to EC twos and all that. Um, you know, dealing with AWS as much as we do. Yeah, I just haven't I haven't used Google Cloud Services enough to really evaluate it. I think uh I don't know. I've I've gotten used to AWS and I know what scares a lot of people and it scared me at first with AWS is uh the pricing model. Like because you put in your credit card up front. Yeah. And then Amazon's like, Don't worry about it. Whenever you go over, it'll be fine. Yeah. We will just charge you. We can for scale whatever you. We can views. scale as big as your wallet. Yeah, yeah. We're <laughs> uh, bigger. Yeah, actually, <laughs> far far bigger. Actually, yeah. yeah. You'll have to reconcile it. So, <laughs> yeah. so one time, um, this was over a year ago. Were you guys working here when we had the uh, the hackers compromised oh, yeah. our yep. account? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, they ran up an eight thousand. We were on our way to Hammond Trees, actually. Yeah. When we, oh, that's right. Yeah, we, we were, were standing yeah. out front when when we started getting the alerts mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, they ran up an eight thousand dollar EC two bill within like a couple hours. Mm-hmm. Like by the time we, so think about how many services, how many servers built by the hour it takes to run up eight thousand dollars. But uh, so was C fives and yeah, or it may have been C fours back then. If we hadn't noticed <laughs> pretty rapidly, that bill would have been far bigger than our wallets. You and know, AWS was super cool I was about that. Say to give them credit, they wrote yeah. off every bit of it. Yeah. They were like, "Yeah, that looks unusual." You Plus guys, let us you guys know, normally you know? don't stand up GPU nodes in Singapore, so that's probably yeah. And then, and then they slapped us on the wrist, and they were like, "Do better." Don't. Uh, what had happened was, I probably shouldn't say this, but <laughs> someone I won't say who. It doesn't matter who. I shouldn't say it because it's just like it's such a should never do this. Yeah. But uh, someone's keys, someone's IAM keys, got pu- pushed to a public GitHub repository, and I mean, it took like within thirty minutes. People were crawling and watching that stuff, including GitHub. GitHub emailed us before AWS did and That's was like, was, hey, yeah. by the way, you just made a public commit that had what appears to be AWS keys in it, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool detection on their part. You yeah. Know? They but, actually have something new now, too, where um, if you have, at least with uh, RubyGem that I've been working on some, um, if you have Dependencies that have like reported security vulnerabilities, GitHub will tell you now. Oh, really? Yeah. They get it from like the gem file and like they're scrubbing it? I guess so. That's cool. Hmm. I'm sure that something like that exists for PIP requirements files, although I've never used one. Yeah. I some some sort of PIP nanny, basically, that can tell you what's, what's good and what's bad. Mm. Also, keeping it updated for just mm. for security releases, you know? Yeah. That's pretty cool. And I, I, I guess I get why GitHub would do that because GitHub's a real shop, I believe, right? So they used to be. Yeah, I mean, now. again, and we talked about this yes, like last week yeah. with most of those services, these big first class, you know, tech players. They're now built with everything under the sun. They were built with something once, but now it's you know well, I was a million more so teams. Referencing the Microsoft acquisition. Oh, that too. Yeah. yeah. Did you see there was an article that came out? Uh, someone was was jabbing uh, about how Google developers are uh, like flocking to VS Code at Google. Really? 
And so, which to, to as developers, we look at that and go, oh, I get it. It's a pretty good IDE. No. But to the outside tech world, they're like, Google developers are using a Microsoft product every day at work. Hashtag WTF. You know, that's mm. the, that's the, uh, the, the BuzzFeed version of the headline. But, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I thought that was funny, but uh, also not that unexpected. No, no. You know, VS Code is, is pretty sweet. I know uh, Visual Studio, um, probably the first IDE I actually used, uh, was, was pretty amazing at the time. Uh, which was like 2010 or 15 or something, somewhere in between. I there. think, I think, um, I'm trying to think of the first IDE I actually used. It was in college mm. um, and it was a C IDE. We were using Borland C. Was it Code Blocks? No. Mm. See, I, 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 did Borland actually have an IDE? Did, did anybody ever use that? Never used I know that they had their version of they had their own compiler, mm. but I can't remember if it was a Borland IDE or if we were using um, there was a there was a .NET I guess like a C .NET IDE. Mm. I want to say, mm. am I making that up? Uh, I don't know. Um, well, I mean, dot, I, de- I definitely it, used Eclipse been, in my Java classes. That was all Eclipse was mm-hmm, the IDE that checks there. out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anything with .NET would have been. Visual Studio, I imagine. Yeah. In the day, I remember using when when I was tinkering with C plus uh, plus back again, you know, early two thousands. I remember Code Blocks was was what I was using, um, just because I didn't know any better and was like, "How does program?" And yeah. Everyone's all like C plus plus. I'm like, "Cool. How does program C plus plus?" Well, Code Blocks. <laughs> yeah. For free is what you're gonna need, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, it wasn't real great, but it's interesting that um I never I'm thinking back to when I was doing computer science. Um I didn't go to a great computer science school. And arguably few universities are good computer science schools, but you went to U of A, Hayden. Mm-hmm. Did you guys do any C in your computer science like program? None of the foundations classes did C but I believe several of the Bachelor of Science classes that I didn't end up taking used C, but I did take a uh, GPU programming elective that used C. So we had um, everything, like we started in C++, and then object-oriented programming was in Java, and things pretty much stayed in C++ and Java throughout. So we took an assembly class, (laughs) <laughs> I took a Lisp class, an mm-hmm. AI class, which is funny in retrospect. Mm-hmm. It's fun to look back on my artificial intelligence class, which was not what we call artificial intelligence today. Mm. There was really nothing about that. That was a Lisp class. That could have been a how to build your own shit in Emacs class, mm. way more than it was an artificial intelligence class. <laughs> but that was it. That was like the assembly or assembler... Um, C++, Java, and this one Lisp class, uh, nothing was taught in C, which I think is so, looking back on it, so weird. They were very heavy on object-oriented stuff. Mm-hmm. It's that enterprise crap. Yeah. It's what, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's who funds the program and who wants to hire people for the jobs. I get it, right? I know, I know why that happens now. Right. But like to not learn any foundational C programming, I thought was, I look back and go, that was money well spent. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, C C is fascinating, you know, definitely um to to think about, you know, I mean it it's like 
back to my parsing Jason and C story, you know, I mean, it's it's painful when you're like, oh, God, I have to do that with C. But when you think about assembly and like the problems that C solved, that that's pretty, pretty fascinating. I was reading some of the uh, Apollo flight control code the other day. I was it too. came up again. Is Maybe that, you posted it or something I mean, on our is, Slack channel. Is that in assembly? It is. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's just because that's that's pre C. Right yeah. There, right? Yeah. Like and it's landing on the moon. It's fascinating. Uh just how like what what the hoops that had to be jumped through, but what could also be written in assembly. Mm-hmm. And like reading the comments of how someone basically kept it in memory, <laughs> like while they're working through it of, you know, cause like <laughs> things that that's, that are like a one liner for us are, you know, like 60 lines of assembly code mm-hmm. uh, at our, at our high level languages. And so like reading the comments of like, okay, now we're going to move, you know, this, uh, you know, we're going to move this digit to this register and then we're going to do some bit shifting in order to, because remember, the outcome we're going for is this, and the comments follow it all the way through. It's fascinating code. Yeah. I also thought it was fun that um, the person who put that on GitHub actually transcribed it from written document, like printouts and, and handwritten notes. I wonder about that. And so in the, in the readme on the repository, it was like, I, I'm absolutely willing to accept pull requests so you can you can submit a pull request on the Apollo eleven <laughs> like lunar module code, uh, but the only pull requests they accept are uh, when people find like typographical errors or mm. things that were transcribed poorly or illegible because some of it was, which is pretty funny. Yeah. So it had two it had two pull requests open at the time. I looked at it. I it would be fun to go in and find a bug and be yeah. like, oh, someone better. <laughs> If you don't fix this, you're going to run into some problem when you stir the oxygen tanks. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fix this before you go load it onto your own spacecraft. Yeah. Make sure to deploy this before Apollo 13. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Man, yeah, assembly is is something. I'm looking, I'm looking at that repo right now, and that makes me appreciate things. Yeah, but you know it I mean? It should. They weren't, they were, <laughs> there wasn't even HTTP2 work with back then. No, I mean there was yeah, there was there was very little to work with. You yeah. were just working with the the CPU basically. Machines didn't really talk to each other, just people and you know, people talk to each other. And- G- gather around kids. Mm-hmm. If you haven't read some assembly code, go read some <laughs> and appreciate your elders because mm-hmm. uh, it was a dark dark world and you're still writing this stuff. You just have so many layers of abstraction between you and it that you don't know. Yeah, exactly. But uh because this is this is pretty much one layer removed from writing uh, bytes. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, to further complain about my wasted money on my education. Um, <laughs> my the assembly class that I took was thirty two bit architecture, mm. and mm. so it was even on the way out. Yeah, this was. I mean, um, but I mean, I guess that simplifies things, though. If, if you're learning assembly, I'll, I'll like, paint. I'll paint a timeline. It did. It was simpler, right. I guess. Um, although not really. You just had like one less register in the CPU. Mm. But but the thing was that the instruction set for AMD sixty four bit processors was. It wasn't just like it was basically like a different dialect, if you will, like mm. different instructions. The instruction set was different for you know non x86 processors um, or whatever it was. I forget now. x86 is Intel's 64-bit. Yeah, but you know, in I, the I-382, caliber. Is that a thing? Yeah, I don't know. That I sounds familiar. Anyway, um, 
Yeah. And so, yeah, to give you a timeline on that, it was the year was 2005. I was taking an assembly class and I was building a gaming PC in my dorm room to play Half-Life 2. So that's how that timeline all set out. And that shit was 64-bit. I, I had just put a 64-bit processor that I could buy off the shelf at Best Buy mm. in my computer. And then I went to class the next morning and was learning 32-bit assembly. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> I should have picked a different college. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, did you have to take that? Uh, you take like assembly at all? Nope. See, it's not even present in the curriculum anymore. Well, again, I mean, I I did a bachelor of arts instead of a bachelor of science, so gotcha. there was a lot less, um, I don't know, rigor in my degree requirements. Sounds a lot more practical. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, yeah. You know, that's the thing. The educational institutions is it's tough to keep up. I mean, it's to, you know, it's just tough to keep up in general with technology and and how fast we're approaching the singularity. Just think about how how long it takes to get information written down, get it printed in a textbook, and then get that textbook published and then get a university to buy that textbook and then get that textbook in a classroom. And the answer is like 10 years, mm-hmm. basically. <laughs> yeah. You know, and just now I, I know, um, I say just now, like this very minute. No. Uh, you know, but recently I, it's interesting a lot of institutions leaning towards Python to, you know, as an instructional language. A learning language. Because I know we get that at, at uh, the Fayette Pi meetups sometimes. A lot of, a lot of people are kind of surprised, like, you mean you can you can actually do real things with Python, object oriented programming even like, yeah build no, real yeah, practical totally. applications of course yeah um, you know the reputation I, I, I get why it's a learning language mm. syntactically and and it's just there's so much like probably I haven't used that many programming languages but out of the maybe with Java being the only exception and Java being more complicated to do. Python has the best standard library that I've ever used. Mm. As far as batteries included, you don't have to install anything else, and like you're able to do stuff. Yeah, arguably. You know, uh, I'm C like like compared to working like C and C plus mm. plus, like there's just not that many header files. You can go get them. There's yeah. there's great open source repositories for it. But like if you if you're just getting started in programming and you just need to like open up a text file and start writing code, you can import anti gravity with Python. You know. Um, but people do think, yeah, learning language mm-hmm. and, and, uh, I, I see stuff on like programmer humor on Reddit and some other places where people like to shit on Python, the white space for, mm-hmm. uh, code blocks and stuff like that. Yeah. And they treat it like it's a programming language with like, uh, like it's got, uh, training wheels on it, you mm-hmm. know, like we're, like we're building web apps with scratch or something <laughs> like a, a gooey drag and drop program builder. <laughs> Uh, it's not that way. It, it it's not, you know. But yeah, I think it's a I think it's a good instructional language and practical, you know, language. But because uh, it, it, I remember we were we were learning um, like pseudocode, and we would have to follow the logic of that, and then you know, also learning Python, like oh. Kind of is pseudocode that just, just works, yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's kind of the logical step of of why why do the pseudocode and then write the code. You know, and kind of do both at the same time with Python. Python is in its own unique way a pseudocode transpiler. <laughs> <laughs> that was Guido's vision. Ah, <laughs> uh, we got kind of like way off topic there, we're, but we were talking about um, micro frameworks. Yep. 
And, you know, thinking about that as an architecture pattern that's becoming really popular. Um, but Alan, you have wanted to talk a little bit about maybe some, some oh, design patterns, design patterns, dev in patterns. general. Yeah. So I, I found this, um, we'll put it in the show notes. Yep. I found this uh, GitHub repo, Python patterns. And a lot of these patterns aren't, you know, particular to Python in general, but they're just implemented in Python as in these examples. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like the, the factory method I'm familiar with, you know, and then the, in that file, in the comments at the top, they talk about that, uh, you know, what that looks like in Java and then what that's trying to do here. I was looking at one called Borg. That, that caught my the attention. The method? A singleton with shared state among instances. That's pretty great. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing. I Python's really good for that design pattern because of class variables that you can modify from instance variables, so they oh. share state and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Builder. I'm just going to sit and mutter to myself as I read these. (laughs) It sounded like when when Gandalf is reading through like text from the first age. Yeah. After he after he gives the ring to Frodo and he's like in the bottom of the tower. The year twenty three in the third age. (laughs) (laughs) Comes back and he's staring into the fire with his pipe. Yeah, finds the story of Isildur and yeah. (laughs) This is a really cool resource though because each of these have. each of the, I, I realize Hayden doesn't have a computer in front of him, and I realize our listeners don't either. But you know, nothing I can do about that. But yeah, so I'll pull this up on the screen. But yeah, it basically gives like a really good long form description of the design pattern and you know what does why this it exists, example do? What is it yeah. mean, meant to accomplish? And then it's got some uh, implement implementing code that shows it. Are these all real patterns? Is the board pattern real? Do you really do uh, this, or are some of these just for funsies? You know, I don't know. That's. It seems like you could use it. Um, you know, I, I know the factory method's uh, a real thing. Um, there's a great book, uh, Python OOP. It, oh, okay. Python OOP. I don't remember what that book's called, but I was I was reading through that, um, and that also has a lot of great uh, object oriented. Examples um, for Python. Object-oriented programming. Uh, Python 3 object-oriented programming, I think is what it is. There's a really good example in here of MVC. Because if you really want to understand MVC as a pattern, like the way I learned it was to go like use a full-featured MVC framework, <laughs> which is like the learning curve is like, okay, I'll understand MVC after I mess with this for six months. Yeah, This is a really cool, just... Here's a model controller in view, all in one file. That is really all cool. implemented from scratch. They're not. There's. They, they don't do much. They don't interact with the database. You know, it's all just like state within the classes. But it shows how they work together, and they have like some also some like uh, class inheritance to show like what is generic to a model, and then what is specific to an instance of that model. Mm-hmm. That's pretty yeah. cool. That is cool. I hadn't I hadn't looked at that one because I I was like MVC. Yeah, I know I know what that is. But that's really cool to see uh, such an abstraction of MVC because because MVC you know it predates web development. Does it? I'm pretty sure we used it for. I'm, I mean, I guess yeah. You can. There's nothing about it that requires you. I I I'm pretty sure it came about like with GUI development. Yeah, right. Because like and could even precede that. I suppose that makes sense. Because honestly, if we invented it for web dev, we wouldn't have called it views. We'd have done what Django did and call views templates. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, because um, you're serving markup. You know? But why they called controllers views, I'll never understand. Mm. Very strange decision. We could almost have a whole episode just debating that. I'm sure that it's documented all over the place why Jacob and Adrian and those guys decided that controllers, they would call it views. I Because I, my vaguely remember reading that Django's views don't behave exactly like controllers do in MVC. Mm-hmm. Um, that they do a little bit more. They're a little bit uh they're a little bit thicker maybe than like a, a skinny controller, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and also you know they they made that that decision for that design pattern was to make the template system so easy for people who weren't developers to use it. That you could learn the DSL of the template layer because uh, it came from the newspaper industry. It was for, mm. so like page editors. It was for people people that were trained and like technical enough to use Adobe InDesign were the people that they were aiming at being able to use that template layer and modify news articles on the newspaper website. That's where it came from. Mm-hmm. So like you can access some variables and you can do some loops and things like that, but you're not going to like... You're not going to add numbers together. You, you know, you can do type check. You can do like a quality checking, and that's about it. But like, you don't get any sort of logical layer in mm-hmm. the in the template layer. Yeah, and as it should be, I suppose. I guess you have like other MVC frameworks had helpers and things like that at the template or at the view layer. But yeah, and you have template tags in, in Django. So I don't know. Maybe it's all the same. Fuck, I don't know. Yeah, I know. That's, <laughs> I always figured I just don't really. Maybe I don't know enough to. Uh, to, to make that distinction. What's that like in, in Rails, how well do they adhere to the idea that you don't put logic in your in your view layer? Um I'm looking at Hayden. They is the, in the They is in the the, the Rails. Rails hive mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean DHH. Um I mean it's set up so that you can do pretty much whatever you want. Um in projects that I've worked on, I've definitely had to convert some of that out of there. Yeah. But, um, What's the default template uh, language or whatever in Ruby or in uh, Rails? I mean, ERB is what it ships with, but everyone I, uses Haml. Yeah, I use Haml for or Hamlet, which is the faster implementation of it. Of Haml, which is YAML. But HTML YAML is that what it comes from? Um, I actually don't know. It, it looks like YAML. It's like it's, it's in, indented. Yeah, you write your you write your your markup like it's markdown, right? So you don't have closing tags. You, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it a lot better than than ERB. But yeah, I mean, you're definitely allowed to put logic in your views. You can um, do like addition and things like that. Yeah, like you can assign variables if you okay, want to yeah. in the view. Well, that is one thing you can do in Django views or in Django uh, templates is like the with tag lets you do variable assignment. But that's like the one thing that kind of mm-hmm. steps away from the whole you don't get logic in your templates. Yeah. And you'd have to be doing something like really crazy to want to do that. Yeah. Too, but mm-hmm. You like it's, um, it's possible. You can call functions and methods in Django templates, but only with no arguments. Basically, everything gets treated like a property. Mm-hmm. And if you call a, a method like a property, it just calls it with no arguments. But if you want to, like, if you have a, you know, some instance that you want to call a method and pass an argument to it, it's like 
go do that in the view and then make it available in the template. You don't get to do it in the template. I think mm-hmm. there, there, there may be a few that you can do that. Like I want to say URL, you can pass an argument to, to like, so you can pass arguments to a template tag, uh-huh. but I'm talking about oh, like, okay. if you've got a model instance, for example, or, or a query set in mm-hmm. Django, right? And so in your template, you can do, you know, my query set dot objects dot all mm-hmm. in a for loop. And, right. and that'll give you a, an iterable of all of the objects because it's implicitly all as a function and mm-hmm. it's calling it with no arguments. But what you can't do is, you know, my query set that objects Get, that filter yeah. and then give it argument. You can't pass arguments to the actual function on, on the uh, variables that you have access to in the template. Unless you're using yeah. Jinja and then it's just like, I don't know how it works under the hood, but it's pretty much just like eval chunk of Python right in your template layer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is... I don't like it. I I don't. I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel about Jinja and my Django, but yeah, it, agreed. I I like Jinja uh, a lot. But it's interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's it can let you uh, definitely abuse MVC for sure. Um, what's the state? What? Let's see. What template? Which one did I scroll I see, past? It? There's template. There's strategy. On this, we're we're back to I'm muttering about this Python strategy behavioral list. pattern. Yeah, uh, aims to encapsulate each algorithm and allow them to be interchangeable. Mm. Interesting. Separating algorithms allows the client to scale with larger and more complex algorithms. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm reading the I'm reading the English words and they're not making any sense to me. So I'm gonna go <laughs> I'm gonna go read the code words yeah. and see if that there's a there's a class. Uh, and then some functions that look like yeah yeah. I've done this before. That that's the yeah yeah. That's so what so curious this about. is what have I have you done I, these things and yeah. you just didn't. I didn't know. know it was a pattern. I didn't know it had a name. Um, essentially, it's just giving you the the opportunity to basically, um, you know, subclass and add uh, a different like payload of functionality. And then in in the class itself, tell it which function to call. So like, um, anytime that you implement like a, a class pattern where maybe you have like a do method, does that make sense? Like you have a, um, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna totally just bury myself in the ground trying to think of an example off the top of my head. But like. Um, you know, you're you're building a image processor, and you've got several different image processing tasks, and so you have mm. some base class that's like do do what I'm supposed to do to this image. It's like in a pipeline, and images are yeah. going through it. Sat- you, saturate this thing. Yeah, and so what the the do method itself does some like kind of pre work and post work and some side effects, but the actual work payload you call a different method to actually do the payload, so that when you subclass it. You override the method that does the mm-hmm. payload, but the the pre work and the post work is consistent across all of its like child patterns. Yeah, yeah, we've uh, yeah pipelines is is a place I can think that we've definitely done that. Yeah, and, and writing the base one, there's a lot of in Python the uh, not implemented, raise not implemented. Yeah, in that, so you can explicitly just. That's a perfect that example thing. of that pattern. If you've ever like built a base class that raises a non-implemented error, then you're implementing that design yeah. pattern. So I've done this too. I just didn't know it. Yeah, I I did this last week. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I, these uh, these are cool. Uh, you know, I, there's always a lot to learn um, going through and, and reading stuff like this. 
because you'll find that you're like, oh yeah, I've implemented pattern like this, but mm-hmm. I I didn't quite do it like that. And someone who spent more time thinking about it than me maybe realized the caveat to my approach. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like you're 90% of the way there, but if you do this one extra thing, your design's so much more stable, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and and flexible, maybe even. This uh, this type of stuff gets me excited about writing code, though. That's this is really what made you know once once I figured out I wanted to uh, make the machines do what I want. This like, stuff is this is like where it kind of gets magic. It, it, yeah, it, that, that and, like no matter what you're doing, there's some generalizable approach to writing code that enables magic things to happen. Basically, yeah, and where the magic is is you know that's that's where the art is. And it's, uh, I think it gets gets pretty fascinating. There. What's, what's this one? This is an example of uh, lazy loading or lazy evaluated mm. uh, properties written in pure Python. So, like, you know, we we can Python gives us a lot of stuff for lazy loading, which basically implements a decorator just like the one that's here. But yeah, so it's it's basically allowing you to set a variable. To some value that's computed, right? Mm. To some function call, mm-hmm. but it's just a reference to the function, and you don't actually evaluate the function. Doesn't actually get called until the variable itself gets used. Mm. So you can assign it and you can mm. pass it around, but maybe it makes some external call to a web service, and it's not until you actually try and access it that anything happens. Um, Django query sets are a good example. Yeah, I was thinking Django ORM. Yeah, yeah, the that's... ORM is, is exactly like that. You can, you know. Instantiate a query set, start applying filters through it, right. do some loops, do some logic, do things. It's not querying the database every time you act on it, but the second you try and cast it to a list or iterate over it, at that moment, the lazy loading payload is a database query that hydrates the, the data. So super useful. Also useful for like, um, uh, you know, configuration injection. So if you've ever needed to like load something lazily in your Django settings file, mm. right? Or your project configuration, where mm-hmm. like the app is booting up, you need to set some global state that everything can access. But at the moment that it's booting, that state may not actually be calculable for some reason. Right. Um, a good example is like URL routing, and, mm-hmm. and you have you have lazy lazy URLs is like a built in in, in Django. Yeah, which lets yeah. you um, lets you use a programmatic URL lookup. Without actually hard coding the URL, mm-hmm. but you can do it in the settings file before the URL engine has actually been built. Yeah, because it's not until you actually try and access that variable that it actually computes it, which is at runtime. Right. I've done that with uh, you set your login URL and yeah, login URL. URL like exactly. That. I've seen some people you know hard code that to slash or. And the whatever. reason why they're doing it more than likely is because they wanted to use URL by name. They tried to do it and they got an exception. Because they tried to access the URL system before it had been instantiated, mm. didn't work. So they got like a, you know, you imported this too soon error or whatever it is. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. There's a lazy loaded version of that because there's two. It's called reverse lazy, is what it's yeah, called. Yeah, that's yep. That lets you do it. So I'm going to spend some time reading all these Python. Yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to share that. I I don't you know have uh, too much to to say about it. Uh, just kind of wanted to you know make make everyone aware. I was going to read the blackboard pattern, but that is way too complicated (laughs) for me to rock right now. We used to do, um, we should bring it back. We used to do like a design pattern uh, team wide thing where we'd appoint someone from the dev team to, I think it was every two weeks, uh, present a design pattern. 
They called it like Computer Science Wednesdays or something like that. Mm-hmm. Be fun. So everyone had to pick something. And most of the time it wasn't like, here's a design pattern I know super well mm. that I'm going to learn you on. Instead uh, it was like, I got to go learn one myself and now I'll teach it to everyone because I spent the time to learn it. Should be, uh, could, yeah, be should, could be a lot of fun. We should resurrect that. Yeah, I'm in. Because that's, you know, and not just Python even. Like I'm, you know, I'm fascinated with any any language, anything. Totally. After uh, after last week, it. after talking about it, I'm really inspired to go mess with Rust. So. Mm. Have you written any Rust? You looked at it at all? Nope. It's pretty cool. I, you know, I did a little bit, uh, but yeah, I, I had no idea what I was doing. There was a project we had that was doing a thing. I can't remember. Some administrative mm, No. Wasn't here. That. <laughs> our, our projects don't do things. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it, it did something like hit some social media and did did some stuff, aggregated some some data from there, um, and and it was done in Rust because the guy that wrote it knew Rust, and so it was written in Rust. So I, I remember just trying to do the thing, like so you just name what was there. Yeah, yeah. Does this magical incantation will will do it? And just yeah, not really understanding what happened. So. You know, to be fair, I would I wouldn't mind looking at at Rust from a higher level, right? From how do I implement things? I haven't seen anything uh, like truly implemented like software in Rust. Um, I've only seen a lot of you know like examples of the syntax and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, never seen anyone build a web app in Rust. For right. Example. It seems very data sciencey from from what I understand. Yeah, and I mean it's. It's uh, it's fast and it's it's kind of in the vein of Go, I think, a little bit as far as like the the choices, the the intentional design, um, the kind of trade offs they wanted to make were the sort of trade offs that Go wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Like the you're going to write it; it's not going to be like writing C, but it's going to be typed and it's going to be compiled. Rust, I don't think, is nearly as like. Um, compile for any platform you can imagine as Go is. Mm-hmm. Go is meant to be portable. Rust is actually, I think, takes speed as a higher priority than portability. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's pretty interesting. Bad bad choice for a name on the programming language, though. That's really probably what's uh, yeah kept me from from it. Uh, <laughs> have you, know. you have you guys heard of the new um, JavaScript front end framework that I've been working on? Mm. It's called Atrophied. Mm. Um, <laughs> It's pretty cool, but it's getting stale. <laughs> uh, womp, womp. Oh, holy shit! Dang. I took I took a screenshot of something and I forgot to post it in Slack for you guys to see. I was cleaning out. I ran out of hard drive space for the fifth time this week because <laughs> because we use Docker sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And so, as my computer was bitching at me all day, you're out of hard drive space. There's a uh, something new in uh, the latest macOS, or at least the first time I had seen it. Uh, uh, space management. Uh, you like right click on a mounted volume and go to uh, manage storage, and it does a really good job of showing you where uh, basically all of your hard drive space is occupied down yeah. to the folder. And it'll give it annotates. And it's almost instantaneous. It's part of the new um, uh, storage format that the the new disk formatting stuff that that Macs use. It's pretty sweet. It's uh, so I was going through and I was trying to find, you know, the the files that were taking up the most size, and uh, really high up there was one of our apps that we had built. Hmm. After when I was I was kind of looking at everything over a gigabyte, 
And I was like, damn, how is that app over a gigabyte? And it was one of the, it was one of our old social media apps that, mm. Uh, mm-hmm. that had a back end in Python, front end in Ember. And oh, I know the one. Yeah. And, uh, Guess how big the guess how big the front end code base was? How big? One point two gigabytes Quit. for a fucking Ember app. Wow. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was all Node modules. That's how big the dependencies we really do on front end apps. Download the entirety of human history <laughs> into a folder, and and our entire app is dependent on it. So the back end, which was when you think about the amount of code that we had to write, it was all back end service. It was all APIs. It was like that thing was running, you know, scheduled jobs that would connect to like 15 different social media APIs and do all this report processing and put it in like index it in Elasticsearch. And I mean, just a ton of processing written in Python. And then maybe like 10 screens on the front end. Yeah. Like just, just, Mm -hmm. you know, a a, a, a login page, a couple of, it was generic charts. The back end would fill in the data and tell it what colors to use. I mean, it was just like, it was the dumbest front end. All of it, like there was a lot more we could have done in the front end. We let the back end process it all. The Python code base was 60 megabytes <laughs> and the front end code base was 1.2 gigabytes. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Wow. So go audit your node modules directories. And, and I don't, you know, I, it's probably, it's probably some specific stuff that was used on that app, but I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. skeptical now to go find some other Ember apps and just see if it's the Ember ecosystem or if it's other stuff. But yeah, I took a screenshot of this huge, uh, front end app. Then that's just the that's just the source code. It's funny you bring that up because I was thinking, I, Hayden, you you were running out running low on disk space at least the other day, and I was like, that's what I said was like, oh well, you're running anything in Docker? Yeah, nuke Docker from orbit, problem solved. And he, you know, he was like, nope. But I, and then I was like, oh well, it's Xcode and and Android Studio because you're doing mobile development in JavaScript. That's oh. that's the other <laughs> thing that will, you know, take up about as much space, if not more. Yeah, it could be. Um, I still haven't figured out what's doing it this time. Um, I definitely ran into the same problem though. Uh, a couple weeks ago that was in fact docker and i think purging everything gave me back like 30 something gigs, gigs yeah, yeah yeah it was a lot yeah it's usually like m- middle double digit gigabytes for me every time i purge docker but have you seen this before this tool yeah uh, um, storage? so it's actually in high sierra too i don't know when it got added got it it is in high sierra because that's what my computer's still on yeah yeah, along the same lines, like it's really interesting because um, I was using the iCloud Drive functionality that lets you sync your desktop folder and your documents folder. I do that, and that's yeah. caused some problems for me. Yeah. I I'm real like, bad about throwing a gigabyte file on my desktop. Yeah, I had a total dumpster fire happen because of it relating, I think, to node modules and just... Oh. The sheer number of files you had it get. in your documents folder or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I yeah. had all of my mm-hmm. development. It was directory. trying to sync all those different directories to right. the cloud. Yeah, yeah. right, and, and download so. it to your other machines and stuff. Yeah, you can see I've got. I'm exposing my my data usage. I've only got four gigs on iCloud Drive, but I would find something like that. I would like log in to. I've got this old iMac in my office. It's not that old, but it's old enough that it doesn't have an SSD, mm. and so that's the only pain point with it is is you know like moving large volumes of data. Mm-hmm. And it was really crawling the other day, and then I realized like I saw it was actually one of the raw 
wave file cuts from the podcast I had left on my desktop of this laptop. And so it was trying to download this one gigabyte wave file. I was like, oh, stop that. What? No, I don't want <laughs> you, that. You don't need that. I don't need that push to every device. Well, it was just really frustrating because I did end up losing some work as a result of it mm. and essentially having to, to delete those folders. Um, but I had set it up back in the day um, when I was kind of more commonly doing work uh, on multiple machines at one time. Right. And I mean, it's probably been over a year since I'd been utilizing any of the functionality and it just cropped back up and came to bite me. Yeah. So I've got, it looks like I see that one video file there. Well, this is my, uh, my iMovie library where I do, Mm. I do make some, some movies and stuff. That's like ridiculous though. 22 gigs of iMovie stuff because it's non-destructive editing. So every time I use a clip, it creates a duplicate of it. And then when you apply a filter to it, it creates a duplicate of it and it has all these like pre-renderings and things like that. So I got to figure out how to clean that up. But I did like nuke um, a substantial amount of like old projects and stuff. But I just, I could not believe because like, look at, look at where we are right here. This is every document on my machine. I've got a 22 gigabyte iMovie library. I've got a, uh, what is this, Java PID file? That's interesting. But that's some sort of disk storage. Probably, I bet that is an Elasticsearch, uh, Elasticsearch index from one of our projects. It's got two gigs of data in it. And then the very next thing is one of our podcast episodes. So that's number, that's the third largest file on my machine. That's what it is now. The third largest file on my machine a little while ago was a fucking Ember project. <laughs> uh, so that blew my mind. And I was like, kill it with fire. This is just reaffirming. Not that I needed anyone to reaffirm my disdain for the front end, but man, yeah. that really did it for me. I, uh, a while back, I, I cleaned mine out so I could upgrade to the new operating system on my Mac. And... Um, uh, Elasticsearch, yeah, I had uh, a bunch of stuff in Elasticsearch, quite a bit in probably Postgres too. What really cleaned it up for me was clean up the the volumes because I didn't, you know, I don't really think about it, and I run all my services locally in Docker, right? Like Postgres and stuff like that. Working on like ten different projects, yeah. that starts to stack up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I used to have a lot of that. You know, you would think that. I thought to myself initially when when I started using Docker, I was like, "This is going to change Dev," because I I just waste so much space with virtual machines. Mm-hmm. Docker's way worse <laughs> for disk storage than virtual machines, especially like when when VMs had like basically dynamic drives. You didn't actually have to uh, like uh. block off the space on disk to to mount a drive in a virtual machine. Yeah, but like. Yeah, I thought to myself, like, oh god, I can't believe I'm gonna every time I stand up a VM, that's like eight hundred megs, you know, or a, a gig of space. And now it's like one project running Docker, and it's like, oh, this will only take seventy two gigabytes of hard drive space you with know, all these layers that are, you know, not yeah. needed but downloaded and made. And, and, you know, and so as far as that goes, it, it's still pretty much. It, I mean, it is a virtual machine, and and like that. I think it, it makes it easier to to inflate uh, because it makes it so easy. Well, and it's ephemeral. Yeah. For my local dev, I don't have any data I need to keep. If it's an active project I'm working on, I might I might want to be careful about not losing the data. Mm-hmm. But one thing I can do with Docker is nuke it from orbit, like prune everything, including volumes, and I'll run that command all day without even thinking twice about it because I'm like, eh, 
next time I run Docker up, it'll be back. It might take a minute to download. So, man, we're bandwidth spoiled. That's what that tells me. That's true. Huh? It's like, oh, I'll just throw this 30 gigs away because I can download it in like 30 seconds tomorrow. You yeah. know, that used to be like, no. It wasn't like your life's work. It was just like, that was four years of download time <laughs> that I just lost. I was reading, uh, I, I, well, I'm still reading uh, Cryptonomicon. Uh, thanks, Sloan, for letting me borrow that. You've been working on that one for a while now. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's like, a tome. It's I saw 1,500 it. pages <laughs> yeah. before, yeah. Um, and it's really small, 1,500 pages, too. Like The dimensions of it are hilarious when you see it. I don't it's know like if you've a seen cube. It does, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really narrow, but it, it just, like, can you even open it and set it flat? I would imagine no. not. <laughs> no. no, absolutely not. That's uh, Jesse's uh, advice was to definitely get a digital version, you know, which <laughs> which I did, so I can make it mobile, so I'm not carrying this block with me. I bet the digital version is still that 1500 page novel is still like maybe one percent of the size of my Ember code base. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> my computer. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. And EPUB's not very big. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and they were talking about in there, um, like not to spoil too much of the plot. Um, like they're 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 building a data haven, like you know, for networking. This is taking place back in the '90s, but I remember them discussing a problem. I don't remember exactly what it was, and they were like, "How will we solve this?" Oh yeah, it, it was part of the the cryptology that's you know very prevalent in that book, obviously. Um, and they were talking about creating noise, and that would be one way to like kind of security through obscurity. You obscure your actual data in, in a bunch of noise. So they were like, what's that look like? Well, we're going to send a bunch of requests that are meaningless to stuff that doesn't need it. It's not going to do anything with it. And they were like, is that effective? And like, yeah, bandwidth, it's cheap. And him making a comment, though, of like, that's very speculative. Like, it'll probably be cheap. Yeah. You know, is, is what everyone, I guess, even back then. Well, had, don't worry, man. Foreseen. It is. It worked out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it did. Like, you know, I mean, I guess it's relative because I still complain uh, about my ISP provider uh, you know, cost and everything. But I am downloading, you know, a video game today can be 20 gigabytes. You want to see some shit like in that vein of, of making a bunch of noisy requests and, and it being more, you might've seen this with me now and someone I was showing it to, uh, it was you, we were talking about, we have, we have some, uh, we have a third party vendor for one of our, it's not our client. Our client's great. What do we have a third party vendor for one of our clients? That's their, uh, we're really upset that they had to make two API calls to our API to achieve what they wanted to do. And, uh, like two two HTTP requests is nothing. I was like, have you ever been to a newspaper website and seen how many requests? And then I went and looked, and uh, I won't I won't call them out, but it's a newspaper here in Arkansas that I used to work for, and and I knew it'd be bad. You want to you want to see some crazy stuff? Let's just count the let's count the network requests, clear it, and go. And it's going 145 requests. Oh, we're at 200. 236 requests. Oh, we're at 300. 400, 400 requests. <laughs> I remember when no, we, it's it's slowing down at 492. 492 HTTP requests to load the homepage of one website. Is that not incredible, Hayden? Have you ever seen anything like that? 
Uh, yeah, just because <laughs> I always like to watch the um the U block counter. Yes, so oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, you, count them up whenever I end up on a site similar to this. It's always the new sites too. I mean, even I went to CNN the other day and was looking at my you know thing, and it it was it was uh blocking. So I worked. I, I, What's it? I worked in news media for over half of my career, and I can tell you right now that. Uh, if there was just a JavaScript snippet that we could drop on our site and it could get us like a couple of pennies of remnant advertising dollars, they were just like, yeah, bring that shit on. Give it to the web guy. Give all the JavaScripts. We had a problem at one of the papers I worked at uh, where like randomly every couple, they, they, they couldn't figure it out. They were trying to diagnose it, but just randomly people would get logged out. No, no explanation for it whatsoever. And then finally, after like, God knows how much like testing of this, like navigating around the site. I found a pattern that I could reproduce the random logouts. Couldn't reproduce it for a while. And it was like, if you go to this page, then this page, then this page, then go back to the homepage, you'll be logged out. Was it eating the cookie? Like it, what? That's what it was. It wasn't eating the cookie. They had so much third-party shit that actually in some browsers, I don't remember which, it only affected one browser. There was, it the maximum, the they, they, they exceeded the maximum either number of cookies or size of a cookie, which was like every request was sending like three megabytes worth of cookies back and forth. That's so fascinating. you had to hit the right set of pages and there was like a, the, the kind of nail in the coffin was this video player that only showed up in one section front of the newspaper, like the sports section. And that thing included like 35 cookies with it um, and it was just enough to basically, I think it was Chrome. Chrome was just evicting the oldest cookie. And if you did it enough, it was the, it was the authentication. It was the session cookie and you <laughs> got logged out. Uh, it's probably. insane. Yeah. There's nothing they like better than send us your JavaScript snippets and sniff all our cookies. We don't care. You know, and all this stuff, you know, happening in the background, like CNN just went to, and you block blocked 44 requests. 44 requests. That's what got blocked. You know, that's. How good I haven't spent a lot of time on our website optimizing requests. I'm curious though. Haven't optimized it at all. It's pretty bad. That's worse than I thought. 111, 112, 115. That's not the worst I've ever seen, but we could definitely do better. It's not 500. No. I want to say, were you looking at that thing with the website, the newspaper website? With me the other day, Alan. Yep. Wasn't it like, I think it was like over a How thousand the, when I, we looked I at it. I was thinking it was like 1,800, but it was, know, it was huge. It we was, may have, yeah. We may have let it sit and let that one, uh, you know, tracking pixel just. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I noticed broadcast. that was one thing. Our website does have a YouTube video. We use, we let YouTube, oh, we, we use YouTube's bandwidth yeah. Yeah, to play the background video. And yeah. I wonder how much of that is just pinging on an interval because I saw something kind of dragging out there. But. Mm hmm. Uh, that can be optimized. But man, it's crazy. So yeah, a bunch of noisy requests. Will we be able to do that? Yes. The answer is yes. Yep. If, you've, if you've been to USA <laughs> Today, you can handle thousands of concurrent requests. Yes, and, you can. And not have a terrible interruption in your data. It's fascinating thinking about how the ad blockers and stuff work. You know, like I, I know um, I went to Fayetteville JS and saw Luke... Uh, Luke Crouch from Mozilla. Luke Crouch do a talk on uh, content blocking. Who we need to get on this show, Ooh. by the way. That'd be really, really Dude. good. Yeah. He's, he might be a listener. He might be. Luke, if you're listening, send, He's us, close a, send by. us an email. Yeah. Um, and, and he did this really great talk on uh, content blocking and showing um, 
I said it was jet. It was at Fayette Pie though, because he was talking about um, the service that they have. They have a service out there um, that whenever you you know open up your your Mozilla browser, um, it checks the service to download a text file of um, all the URLs that you know are are suspect and kind of blacklist. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a blacklist. It yeah. has to so it has to go get that you know, and that's that's. Fascinating. What was that topic that he gave? Was it how Python protects you online or something I like that? I think so, yeah. The the really fascinating thing, he showed a graph of when they first stood that thing up, how many requests it got like right away. And yeah. It, it was it, i think they did a terabyte of of requests, of just requests. request data, which is a blacklist, you know, yeah. text file essentially. Uh, but going out to every Firefox browser, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that that opened up at that time. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, I have to I have to pick at JavaScript again because I love to. But Luke's given two talks that I've been to: one at Fayette Pi, one at Fayetteville JS, mm-hmm. and the topic at Fayette Pi was how how Python. Um, protects your web browsing at Mozilla. Mm-hmm. And the JavaScript one was scary JavaScript that checks you online. <laughs> so yeah. we have a good guy and we have a villain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, Blake can come and defend the villain. You know, we were talking about um, something that uh, Sony got in trouble for. It just reminded me because uh, this is a, a Sony TV we have in our conference room and, and Ben asked, like, didn't they get in trouble for like snooping on people's content? And it reminded me of Blake's talk, or Blake, um, Luke's, Luke's talk that he gave uh, about how, like, device fingerprinting mm-hmm. that uh, these JavaScript libraries were doing. Basically, like, testing what fonts you have installed, what your audio driver is, and a couple of these unique metrics that they could, like, uniquely identify you really, really accurately based on, like, five or six different, like, key data points. Um, and it's a uh, lot more elaborate, you know, these days. Like when Sony got in trouble, I remember they were sampling like a corner of the screen. They is that would, what? Yeah, it would. They would basically like snap a, a, a pixels of one of one corner of the screen, and it would phone it back home. Gotcha. And so what I they? Did, I wasn't thinking about that one. They got in trouble back. I want to say late nineties for installing root kits. Oh yeah. Uh, on on any uh, Sony VAIO laptops and their computers. Well, it was the the CDs that you would get with audio music oh. on them. They were installing root kits on your machine. To oh, that's ma- fan- that's fantastic. To yeah. Be, yeah. They had <laughs> to, an they for, had an autorun.exe on them. Yeah, <laughs> that was supposed to make sure you weren't pirating music. You know, but the yes, DRM so. was a was a backdoor. <laughs> no, they were on TVs. They were um, for their internet connected TVs, which is fine by me because I've never plugged a TV into the internet and I never plan to because my toaster will play Netflix for me and I, I just don't need another device that does it for me. But um, yeah, they would sample a random sample or, or not random, a controlled sample of pixels from like one corner of the screen and it would send back basically keyframes to a web service. And they could, after they got, they could tell the time between the samples and then the content of the samples, and then fingerprint that against a library of content that was known. And after like four or five samples on a controlled timeline, they could be like, you are watching planes, trains, and automobiles. Mm. And they were using that to check if people were um, you know, pirating content. Uh, they were sending it to like cable network. They could do it with live television because you can actually fingerprint live video and, or, and photos 
uh, with stuff that like the human eye doesn't necessarily see, like just some artifacts mm. or what appears to be artifacts, but is actually like you can pluck out from that a, a fingerprint. Gotcha. We use something at the newspaper. We uh, someone wanted to put some JavaScript and a cookie on our website, and so we took the meeting. Uh, but they had this actually really interesting product. This was in like 2011, so it was really ahead of its time. It was an it was an augmented reality thing, and what they would do is we would take photos that we ran in the print edition of the paper and run it through this pre-processing and they would fingerprint the photo and we couldn't tell the difference. We looked at it and said, what did you do to it? And they're like, we just, just put a, a tiny fingerprint in there that you, you can't see. And then they had an app that you could download and we were able to put that photo, print it in the paper, and then you could use your phone, pull up the camera and look at the newspaper. And when you hovered over that photo, a video played. We could link it to a video. It would download and play the video, and it would kind of lay it onto the newspaper. And it was fucking cool because it wasn't like scan this QR code to watch a video. You just you just hovered over the paper, and the photo came to life and mm. started playing video. It was that is really cool. sweet. Yeah. And it was just like there was you know we kind of were able to see a little bit after we were looking for it what looked like just a little bit of visual disturbance, just a little bit of artifacting in the corner. And we said like I guess that's it. You know, it was mm. all proprietary. They wouldn't tell us how it was mm. done, but. Mm-hmm. So you can do more than you'd imagine. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. You only you only have to like be able to pick out like you know a hundred unique pixels and go. That's definitely mm. a payload that we put in there. You know mm-hmm. that you know to the human eye could at the very least be uh, you know some JPEG artifacts. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah. slightly too much JPEG. Mm-hmm. Uh, but honestly, we really I mean you really couldn't see the difference when that mm. stuff gets printed to the paper. Like it loses so much it oh, bleed, yeah. ink bleeds and that's that's what blew my mind is even with ink bleeding on paper mm. it was still able to to identify these photos. It's yeah, pretty cool. So it is. did some sort of like processing on it to to blur it and still be able to identify it. Mm. But it is scary. So I want to, yeah, I think it'd be fun. We should have Luke come. Okay, I have an idea for an episode. I'm going to pitch it on the episode. <laughs> but I think we should have, um, we should do a, a, a paranoia extravaganza and have Luke and Chris Hobbs both come guests on the show <laughs> and talk about everything scary that's happening to you when you're on the internet mm-hmm. and why you should go live in a bunker in Mountain Home, Arkansas. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think that'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's funny. I I was thinking about that kind of on the way in. You know, I'm I'm a Star Trek nerd, and so you know, but I also like Mad Max uh, in that universe quite a bit. And so uh, there's always in in me there's this conflict of like, <laughs> do well, I want to be post scarcity? Yeah, or do I want to be like complete scarcity? It's complete scarcity, exactly. <laughs> One or the other. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not sure. Some days both could be fun. Yeah, yeah, I think both both could have their merits, especially if one or the other goes very badly. Uh, you know, cuz and then Terminator, right? That's all Skynet. I'm always scared we're we're building Skynet. But then I think about Captain Picard going computer. Yeah. <laughs> Earl Grey hot. Like and I'm like that would be sweet though. Yeah. How do we get there? Well, you know, we also have, also a neural network. <laughs> yeah. We have to we have to train the the computer with uh, with lots of data. Yep. Yep. I'm not that worried about Skynet because I see I'm how I see how AI is actually being used and it's used to like. Um, take your face off and put it on someone else's face on a Facebook video. And I'm like, this is harmless. <laughs> this accomplishes nothing. Yeah. Uh, or just turn your face into a emoji with an iPhone. 
Yes. Yeah. A, a, a memoji. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that, that's yeah. what the AI is doing. We're tr- we're training it for terrible things. If it ever does get wielded against us for evil, if we do have you know robots attacking us, they're going to be like, "What do we do with these humans?" Except for take their face off and put <laughs> put their face on other people's faces, <laughs> yeah. as we were taught by them. Yeah, I was going to uh, say they won't question it. This is something so. that brings them great joy and humor. <laughs> <laughs> While they farm us for our, our body heat because the sun burned out a long time ago. Throw in some Matrix there, too. Oh, boy. Well, I think that's an episode, fellas. All right. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, we, I don't, we don't have a guest lined up for next week, but the week after that, I believe, uh, Blake Johnson, Johnston, I did it again. Mm. Blake Johnston's going to come back from RevUnit to talk to us some more, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, side hustles. So that's, that's two weeks away. And then next week, mystery show. I don't know what it is yet. I got to get me a side hustle. Yeah, you got two weeks to side hustle, Alan. <laughs> it's in the theme song of the show. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, always hustling. Oh, we'll see Every you in a- day you hustle. <laughs> <laughs> which now plays on our Sonos, which Alan played from home today, just uh, for was, fun through yeah. the Slack channel. Seth was on a sales call. <laughs> and that nice. thing went off. Uh, it scared the shit out of us. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I Note totally, to self. Totally forget about Seth. Like, Lock down the Sonos from outside doing, the office. Doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll see you in a week. Thanks for listening to Friday Afternoon Deploy, recorded and produced by the team at Lofty Labs. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to future episodes via iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also follow at Friday Deploy on Facebook and Twitter for episode previews, live streams, and other behind-the-scenes peeks. Past episodes and show notes on this episode can be found at friday.hirelofty.com. That's friday.h-i-r-e-l-o-f-t-y.com. If you'd like to contact the show, or if you're local to the Northwest Arkansas area and would like to be a guest on the show, you can email us at podcast at hirelofty.com.